Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Cybersecurity Magnified. I'm Krista, your podcast host, and I'm joined by Eileen, which is one of our cybersecurity engineers. Today, we are discussing techniques to reduce your digital footprint, which is something that I know that we all can relate to. Um, We've also posted a blog on our website talking about uh, a lot of these topics, um, and that has a downloadable infographic in it as well. So if you want to share that with any colleagues or friends or family, that makes it really easy to do so. Um, So if you want to go to our website, which is braxtongrant.com, go to our insights page and look for that blog, the Reducing Your Digital Footprint blog, and you'll be able to follow along with a lot of the topics that we dive a little bit deeper to in this episode. Um, So without further ado, let's get started. Welcome to Cybersecurity Magnified with Braxton Grant Technologies, where a candid cybersecurity conversation meets tactical and applicable advice. Investigate with our experts on the latest in the cyber world, including security best practices, compliance guidance, and all things cloud adoption. Thanks for joining the conversation. Let's get started. let's cover the what and the why. So Eileen, can you define what a digital footprint is and why protecting it is important? So to talk about digital footprint, I feel like we need to address where digital footprint came from. So in the past, our digital footprint was technically a paper footprint. We would fill out forms, paperwork, banks, schooling. Most of what we had was tied to something that would identify us for U.S. citizens, it could be identity numbers or social security numbers, could be license numbers. Um, and for some states, the social security number actually used to be our so our license number. Other private information we won't want or desire to give people unless they absolutely need a reason to see it. So as physical paperwork in a fair amount of places has transitioned to digital, scanned, now available online, databases, provided and stored by companies, now our digital footprint is where paper or physical footprints of our information has transitioned. And originally with storage, storage for space cost a lot, so most people did keep things in paper, moved it to a digital footprint, and as space and size of hard drives became more affordable, people would keep those on premise in their headquarters, or a data center. And then as, again, storage became more costly to have on-site and you could transition to cloud, a lot of our digital footprint has transitioned to a cloud storage as it is for some companies, if not a majority of companies, cheaper to afford the space and services of a data center owned and managed by someone else that can maintain the operating systems and updates safely and securely with an agreement and that company has with that third party. So our digital footprint is where our information lies with quite a variety of vendors from every business you've ever done any business with, um, as well as some places that have gathered digital information about you through marketing cookies, websites that you've visited, places where you've put in a credit card or you have done shopping. So why is protecting this important? There is an extent to which you provide information and you have a privacy policy that you have agreed upon by doing business with that company that identifies how your information will be used. It's important to understand every company does have a privacy policy. 
That privacy policy identifies that you are aware of how the company will use your information going forward and who they will share it with. This could be a business that you do business with or commercial, or this could be a healthcare provider or someone else that you have services with. Your information is important to protect because once it's out there, uh, and we're all well aware that there are many breaches, um, no breaches necessarily the same, but a loss of information still means that your information is out there where someone could use your information to create identity theft or create documentation to pretend to be you, open up bank accounts, credit cards, loans, buy things that may necessary that could impact your credit score and your life negatively as they leverage this information. So protecting our information is important to make sure that we do not allow people to use it in inappropriate means and knowing where our information is stored and whom has it is important so that we can protect it and document it appropriately. One of the things that we wanted to cover more from the blog was from point number two, um, updating your antivirus software. And one of the most important aspects of keeping software updated is not falling for free software offerings. Why is this important? So to talk about free means that we have individuals that may be looking to get software protection from antivirus without having to potentially pay for some of the more expensive commercial or small business offerings, even the ones that are meant more for end consumers, your home office, or even your family, a subscription. So many of those are designed to be priced at a point where people can afford. Now, all of us at some point have looked for deals, whether that be on shopping sites, or we have looked for the ability to save some money. And in one of those aspects, obviously, free software offerings where antivirus is provided and you do not have to pay for a subscription does seem like a very attractive feature. Now, the challenge with anything that's free is it means that what you are giving is not necessarily clear. I will be um, more descriptive here. And by that, I mean, when you are using someone's software for free, it's very possible that you are giving something to them that you aren't aware of that is actually valuable, which is why the software has been offered for free. And by that, I mean, you may be providing your information, your name, your address, your birth date, maybe the state you're located in, uh, system information as you install that software. So all of that still is information that can be marketed. And I mentioned earlier about privacy policy, that information can be used by that company to which you have agreed to use a free software. Now that's a example of information that you may give, but the software you're installing that was not for charge may be using that information and selling it to other marketing companies. So your information may be sold beyond your awareness. So not necessarily everything that's free may cost you money, but it may cost you the ability to give away some of your personal information in order to use that free software. Now that's assuming that you haven't taken an opportunity to evaluate the software to make sure that the software that you're installing is only installing what you had understood it to install and not other more malicious or subversive applications that may do malicious things because we are well aware that there are plenty of free software installations out there and not all of them 
are designed to be innocent and operate as normal. So you want to make sure that what you're getting is what you expected. So not all free software should be installed, um, nor should just because it's free be assumed that that software is safe enough to use, especially on a personal system, um, not speaking about corporate systems, which you would not want to install free software unless you understood and were permitted per your corporate policy to install. So in regards to software and on the point of software that may have additional features that were not intended, some of these are great and give you extra features and functionality, but some of these may not be expected. So even for software that you pay for, it is important for antivirus to make sure that the solution that you're installing only is installing the components you need. Obviously, if it's antivirus software, you want whatever capabilities that antivirus software will will provide you in order to best protect your system. Recently in the news, within the last two to three months, there was news in regards to a paid software that actually installed something additional. And it was a crypto solution add-on that allowed the computer's capabilities to be used to compile and create the opportunity for that end user to make money as well as the software manufacturer to make money by using your resources on your system to compile and build cryptocurrency. Now this sounds great, but if you are not into cryptocurrency or you are not aware that this add-on or plugin had been activated and installed, then you would have likely installed a software that had more capabilities or operated in a way that you were not aware of. So please be sure to evaluate the solution you're looking at to make sure that it's not installing more than you expected and that you're only activating or allowing it to install those components that you know you will need. Now, we did talk in the blog that it's important to keep it updated, which is because as the hackers and the individuals who are responsible for updating software is kind of a cat and mouse game, there are people that will find holes and use them for malicious purposes, and then there are plenty of software manufacturers who will then plug those vulnerabilities, provide resolutions, provide ways to fix it. This is a cat and mouse game, which means it continues to happen. So it is important to make sure that your software is updated. That way you are given the best protection for the current viruses or malicious intent that is aware and that there is knowledge provided by that vendor to best protect your system. Moving on to point three of the blog, we had talked about deleting old accounts. Can you go a little bit deeper into reusing passwords for accounts and what risk that provides? So the biggest part here with deleting old accounts is, is that some of the appliances or devices or IoT, Internet of Things, items that you may use in your house, they could be recording devices, they could be digital watches, they could be speaker boxes some of which may interact with an Apple or a Google environment where you can use voice activated to activate lights. But a lot of these may be businesses that have sold a product, got your information, you've registered, got your warranty, and now the company is no longer in business. Maybe that device has been discontinued, but you did at some point provide an email address, register for a warranty, registered to get updates, any patches, and now that the business is no longer in business or that device is no longer patched, you still provided information to that account 
so that you had use of that product while that company was still in business and you were utilizing their product. This is an area where reusing passwords is dangerous because now these businesses may be and could consider either selling their information for marketing or those companies could be breached where your information would be available. So using a password for more than one account uh, could risk your password being populated in a data breach. Those companies that went under may no longer protect their databases the same way, may no longer provide the same protection of customer data. So your data could be at risk for being breached by those vendors if they chose to, or that database was maliciously compromised. So the goal here is to make sure that if you are no longer using an account, either delete your account with a company or a product. If that company is no longer in business, make sure that the password that you may have saved in some type of password storage or vault has been updated and that password is not reused elsewhere so that your email address and that password cannot be used to get access to other devices that you may have registered. And keep aware that those products that you use, if the company still is in business, but is no longer providing updates, those updates were important for security purposes for that product. You don't want your Wi-Fi camera or your Bluetooth speaker box to be accessed by someone that is not you. So without having a company that's providing software patches, you could be at risk for someone having access to that if that product has been breached and the company is no longer in business, they are no longer providing updates. So it is advised to make sure that the products that you do use are protected. You have a company who is still in business providing you patches and updates, security patches as necessary. And if the device is no longer a business or does not have any type of support from that business, that you evaluate whether that product should still be used in your home or your business providing that you have done what you can to protect that asset being accept, accessed by an individual that is not yourself or someone in your home. Moving down to point number six of the blog, we did identify that you can't avoid attaching your email to accounts. There's a lot of financial incentives um, to doing that. However, there are ways to minimize the risk and diversify where your information is going. So what are some techniques that people can use to protect their email and the information that is sent there? So in the blog, we did mention the possibility of using separate email addresses. So for example, I may use an email address specifically for talking with my closest friends and family. I may use a different email address for working with some nonprofit groups. A completely different email address for working for say LinkedIn or social media that may be work related. And I may even use a different email address for some of the signups and stuff that I may use in regards to, as you mentioned, financial incentives for save XX percentage. If you sign up now and give us an email address, we will send you a code you can use for shopping. So you may choose to separate email addresses based on purposes. No problem with that. Um, keep in mind that over time, if you use the same name, birth date, and a different email address, at some point there is the possibility that marketing, despite being meant to be marketing your information as unique 
There could be some correlation down the line that could associate your information with a variety of email addresses. Um, that is possible. There's really no way to avoid that. But what you could do if you didn't want to go down the role of having that many email addresses, as I just described, is create some email modifiers, assuming that your email provider allocates for such. As an example, I will use Google. Google obviously has benefits for using Google Mail, and there are folks that do not want to use Google Mail because obviously you are giving some information away to Google by using their products, whether you're using Maps, Calendar, email. If you are a Google account user, one of the things we did not mention in the blog is you do have the ability to create email modifiers. Give you two examples. One would be is let's say I had an email address that was my first name dot last name. And we'll just say that my first name is Mary and my last name is long. So Mary dot long at gmail.com. So we'll say my name is Mary long. I may put a period in my email address and now people can send me email at mary.long at gmail.com. If perhaps I wanted to send email to that email address, but I wanted to be able to filter, I could actually move that period in my email address at any point in time and the mail would still make it to my email address. So if I wanted mary.long and I wanted to move it, I would move it to mar period y l o n g at gmail and it would still arrive at my inbox. Then I could filter my inbox based on mail where that period has changed its place in my email address. That is one way to do modifiers. So maybe I sign up for certain places for finance with the period all the way at the end, right before the G and it's Mary long period G at gmail.com. So anywhere you can move that period, it will still arrive at your Gmail account. And another one that you can use for Gmail also, that is kind of one of those unknown things is you have a Gmail account. You can actually use a plus such and such at the end. So an example. So let's say my shopping email is Eileen loves to shop at gmail.com. So I'm now going to sign up for, we'll say Amazon. So Eileen loves to shop plus Amazon at gmail.com. That plus Amazon that I've added to the end of my email address will still arrive at Eileen loves to shop at gmail.com. Now, none of these emails that I've identified are actually in use, but I'm giving some examples for opportunities for you to consider if you are a Google user or you're considering using Google in this manner. Now, for your account, when possible, I do suggest that you minimize the capabilities of others getting access to your email. Why? Email is a vector for people being able to get access to shopping sites, financial sites, healthcare sites. Anything that has your information is likely going to use an email address. So I do suggest that you have an opportunity to, to review our Braxton Grant website in regards to two-factor, multi-factor, and adaptive multi-factor because a lot of these capabilities are still available to our consumer or home users, not just our corporate users. As an example, there are places that do not support two-factor authentication to your accounts. On our blog, we do identify that there's a website that discusses a site where you can determine whether your consumer site that you're trying to go to does support two-factor, but when you do have the opportunity to use two-factor, 
whether it's a finance, banking, email address, social media account, please add that to protect your account. Too many people have had Twitter accounts, Apple accounts, Amazon accounts, YouTube accounts, all of these accounts violated because their password was breached and they did not have two-factor. They were not able to protect their account. So, for example, I actually have a YubiKey attached to my email address and I do have a Google account and I have registered a YubiKey. So even if you happen to have my password, it requires a YubiKey to be able to get access to my account. And because I believe in a backup factor, I actually have two different YubiKeys added to each of my Google accounts so that if I happen to lose one of my two-factor, which is my YubiKey, I would always have a backup to be able to get me into my account. So even if my password was breached, my account would not be subject to being taken over because the person would physically have to have my physical token to be able to get access to my account. Now that's an extreme measure that I take personally, but you may feel more comfortable with an SMS or an email at another email account to be able to allow you to get in. Now, SMS, let's talk on that real quick. SMS is going to be a message sent to your phone that is not encrypted, that will be a code that can be used to get access to your account as a form of two-factor authentication. Now, that goes to a phone number that could be registered with AT&T, Sprint, Verizon, T-Mobile, whatever your vendor is. And that phone number can be subject to SIM swapping. So as an alternative, you may, if you are a Google account user, consider getting a Google voice number. And instead of having that SMS sent to a physical phone number, have it sent to your Google voice number, which cannot be SIM swapped as that SMS message is delivered to your Google Voice, which is also reachable by a different Google email address. Now keep in mind, you can only have one Google Voice number to a physical phone number. So if you want two different Google Voice numbers and you happen to have two different phone numbers for a cell phone, you could technically have two different Google Voice numbers for two different cell phone numbers. So that's one Google Voice number for a physical phone number. Another point we covered was protecting your offline presence, which was point number eight, if you're following along in our blog. There are a few list items we included to proactively protect your online presence by starting offline. Eileen, how can digital risks permeate to physical risks and vice versa? Uh, what are some ways to be proactive in protecting your offline presence? So digital risk can permeate to physical by us having accounts that someone may use for social engineering to try and get access to our accounts by calling and pretending to be us. And really the goal is to make sure that we protect our information, whether someone gets access to our information digitally or someone gets access to our information physically and is attempting to get access to our digital information. So in the blog, we did touch on some great information in regards to our offline presence, your financial institutions, some of which may have online banking, or you may have a classic institution that only has in-person, which is great. That is going to require someone to physically have to go there if they're trying to get access to your account. So let's talk for a second in regards to financial institutions that do allow you either to call up 
and get information or update your account or those who have online access via a web portal where you would create a username and password or email address and password. So you first want to make sure that again, I touched on not using and reusing passwords. Be assured that you're using an email address and a password that are unique for that site. Now, if it's a financial institution where you can phone them up, most of them, maybe not all, but most do allow you to create some type of passphrase. Now, yes, in historical perspectives, we know that people have always said, oh, you should use a family member or your mother's maiden name as a verbal password to get access to your account. Now that a lot of this information has been publicized, either by breaches or by filling out too many forms historically, yes, you should not be using a unique verbal password for your account that is something related to something someone else would be able to identify based on information has been provided. So this secret or verbal password, this should be something that you have not used elsewhere that is only used for financial institution. And to go a bit further, I personally will create a verbal password for a financial institution. And then maybe a couple days later, I will call back and I will make sure that before I am prompted for any more personal information, that that agent who has answered the phone is properly prompting me for that verbal password before they go further. If they do not, I ask to speak with the supervisor to make sure that what has been agreed upon, which is that my information will not be given out to anyone without the use of that verbal password, is being followed as expected and agreed upon by that institution. Those are learning examples to make sure that your financial business that you are doing business with is adhering to the policy that they have agreed upon by creating a verbal password necessary to get access to your most sensitive information about your account. Now let's talk about having your name removed from things that you don't have control over. Obviously we all get emails. Oftentimes once we anticipate from things we signed up for that we forgot to not sign up for or remove ourselves from mailing list, but you may also get spam that you didn't ask for that has been sent to you because your email address has been part of a breach or has been part of a marketing campaign where someone has gotten access to an email address that is actively being used, meaning someone does check that email. It is a usable and valid email address. Now, yes, there's differentiating opinions about whether if you have an email that you should hit the button that says unsubscribe because now whoever it was that sent that email has information that you are still actively using that account or you should use the capabilities of your email client or email provider to be able to block or add a spam. Now, your choice differentiates based on whether you believe that by hitting the unsubscribe in that button may lead to adding you to more spam lists. But if it is a vendor that you did sign up with and you do recall signing up for a mailing list, hitting unsubscribe is not a bad idea. If it is an email, that you have received that you do not remember signing up for, it may be advised to avoid hitting the unsubscribe button in that email and instead going to your email vendor of choice and hitting block or spam from there. If you choose to hit unsubscribe and it is a vendor you did not ask for email from, be aware that you may be alerting them that your email address is still valid, you are checking it, 
and you could anticipate additional email from other spam vendors using that. So perhaps delete or blocking and reporting as spam may be advised in those scenarios. On our last part, we talk about reducing your paper contact. So we did talk about how physical risks can permeate to digital and digital can permeate to physical. So one of the ways that we still may receive information is, I talked about paper, physical documentation about users. So we get a lot of physical mail, mail pieces for bills, could be for bills, loans, mortgage, credit cards, medical bills, information, letters that we expected. But the goal is to reduce as much of this physical documentation because it can be used to get access to your credit, your information. So what would be advised is, is to reduce the paper necessary, especially for those that are bills and loans. And what you can do is you can reduce the likelihood of those being intercepted by your mail and make them digital to email addresses that obviously you have secured, as we've mentioned earlier in the blog. So if someone is going to be interested in taking your identity, they may want to intercept new offers you're getting for credit card or insurance via mail, waiting at your mailbox to take that out if you are a person who has a mailbox that is physically on the street. So what you want to do is you want to try and reduce that paper that you're getting by opting out of any pre-approved credit offers if you're no longer in the market for getting a new credit card. This would be a great opportunity to use the link we've included in the blog that talks about using the FTC, Federal Trade Commission's website on how to stop credit card and insurance offers. If you do have a credit card today that has a fair amount of balance, whether you pay it all down every month or you only pay a small amount, you may find that you've received a fair amount of mail in regards to would you like to consolidate your credit or would you like help in, you know, eliminate your credit debt. All of this is going to drive additional physical mail to you. So you have two options on the FTC site. You can either opt out of getting this mail for five years or if you do the paper version and mail it in, you can opt out of getting them permanently. And I will say from my personal experience that I did the paper version of getting out of them permanently and it has significantly reduced the amount of paper I get. Now, yes, I will still get nonprofit documentation and any businesses I've done business with have a right to be able to mail me unless I ask them otherwise. But from a credit card and insurance offering, I have found that a fair amount of my physical paper has been reduced by following this process. So I do suggest you take an opportunity to go to the FTC site on optoutprescreen.com if you are looking at this avenue to reduce physical papers that could be intercepted in regards for someone to take access to your identity and either create a new loan or a new credit card on your behalf without your knowledge. Yeah, and you have talked a little bit already about identity theft, which relates a lot to credit. So how are these related? Why is this important? And give us an example on locking down credit. So identity theft, you will find, hopefully in your lifetime, you will not be subject to identity theft, but there is the possibility that this can happen by someone getting access to your information via a breach of a, a vendor or a product that you may have subscribed to, or perhaps 
a healthcare or someone else that you did business with that happened to have access to your information and enough of your information was available for someone to try to assume your identity and take over, especially if let's say you had great credit, they may be able to apply for more loans or get better deals on things because your credit was higher than perhaps somebody else's identity that they also had access to. So if we talk about the three big credit bureaus, that would be Equifax, Experian, and TransUnion, and there is a distant one called Innovus. Those are the current three credit bureaus to which we'll have information about your credit. Credit obviously being good means that you get better rates on perhaps mortgage, auto loans, student loans. In general, a higher credit rating does lead to better opportunities and a lower credit rating does lead to maybe less financial opportunities for getting access to credit when you need it. So previously in the history of credit bureaus, you really didn't have much of an option in regards to protecting your credit account, meaning access to your account um, to make sure that you knew what was on your credit history. You could file that you had a fraudulent possibility, especially if a vendor told you that your information had been breached. You could file to look at your credit uh, with any of those credit bureaus. And if you put a fraud inquiry, they would put a hold potentially 60 to 90 days on there. And it would give you an ability to look at your current credit per credit bureau. And you could look to see what that credit bureau actually had in regards to inquiries to your account, whether those be hard or soft credit pulls based on the bureau. And most of those bureaus do communicate. So if you file and you did file a fraudulent inquiry with Equifax, Equifax may also pass that to Experian and TransUnion, or you could do due diligence and check to make sure that all of those also had that same information. Now that fraud inquiry isn't necessarily going to be a freeze. Previously freezes for your credit did require money. You had to pay to freeze your account so that that way potential creditors would be unable to view or pull your credit file, therefore making it more difficult for identity thieves to apply for these credit lines in your name. Great if you want to protect your credit, bad if you're actually trying to get a loan or you're looking to apply for a new credit card. This did, as I said, used to cost money. Now these freezes have become free, meaning you should freeze your account and your credit when you are not currently looking for a loan, a mortgage, a new credit card, and unfreeze it when you need to. Now, keep in mind, some of these freezes could impact if you're looking for a raised amount of money on your credit card to see if they will allow you to have a higher balance. Could also impact for job inquiries when background checks may need to look into your credit. So freezes are good for those who do not actively need to be adding or creating new lines of credit or pulling against credit, but should be frozen when you're not actually using your credit and opening up new lines. That locking will help prevent. Now the locking itself is not the only step you should take. You should also make sure that for these credit bureaus that you have registered your email address that you own with them. So for instance, if Equifax has an account where you can access and create an account, then you should be creating an email address. You should be logging in with Equifax or TransUnion. 
or any of the credit bureaus that allow you to have an account and make sure that you have created an account that you can access to so that someone else does not beat you to it and create an account using identity that they've gotten from a breach to create a trusted account with a credit bureau. You want to make sure that you freeze your credit file with them. And if you want, you can also leverage placing a security alert at check systems used by lots of banks. It validates new customers, especially if you're getting a new checking or savings account. Again, the opt-out pre-screen I talked about earlier for the offline presence is another one you want to make sure. And if you don't want your salary history to be shared over your entire career, there's also an opt-out of Equifax that you'll find on the blog that will allow you to make sure that your salary history is not shared by Equifax. So in the goal here is to make sure that we are reducing the risk of having our credit used fraudulently by people who are taking our identity and using it maliciously and our protection and our assertiveness and making sure that we make these proactive measures are going to make sure that our credit remains within reach, protected, and we are the only ones who have access to be able to add or create additional lines of credit and reduce the capabilities of someone being able to fraudulently take over our account. And finally, earlier we had discussed SIM swapping in regards to SMS and two-factor, um, which is something that we also covered in point 10 of the blog. So can you dive a little bit deeper into that? Sure. So SMS is going to be messages that are going to be sent to a phone number, likely a physical phone, and physical phones are attached to a SIM sitting in a cell phone. So this SIM card is going to be unique. Every phone has a different SIM card, and if you move that SIM card to another phone, the phone number will obviously move pending the SIM card is usable between two different types of phones or phone models. SIM swapping is going to be the capability of me potentially using malicious means, i.e. social engineering as an example, to move a SIM card that perhaps you have in your phone to a SIM card that I have in my phone and moving your phone number maliciously and unexpectedly to a phone that is not yours. That is one of the ways that SIM swapping occurs, other than identity theft and other mechanisms. This has been an, a bigger issue, especially in customers or individuals who have access to, say, cryptocurrency that's tied to an SMS account or phone number that gets access to that account, perhaps um, three or four digit Twitter accounts, which tend to be very popular and desirable for people to take over and resell. So if you have something that is very valuable, it is very possible that you could be a target of SIM swapping. Or if you have access to accounts that require an SMS message sent to a phone number and there is the desire to get access to your account, SIM swapping is possible as a way to get malicious access because you have not locked it down with a physical security token, such as the YubiKey I described earlier. So SIM swapping would allow me to receive potentially an SMS message with that six-digit code instead of the six-digit code that you were expecting to get at your phone if I had moved your phone number to a SIM card that I owned on my phone. So this SIM swapping, if you want to avoid it, using, say, the Google Voice that I mentioned earlier is another way to avoid SIM swapping because using a Google Voice number cannot be SIM swapped. There is no SIM regarding a Google Voice number. And phone numbers were really never designed to be an identity document. 
especially because of the method that I just talked about, about getting access to phone numbers that you should not get access to. But yet, they've traditionally become a way of letting people get access to accounts, and they are not secure. Uh, your SMS message is not encrypted, unless you're using an encrypted method. Uh, some of the mobile applications that allow for encrypted text messages aren't necessarily applications that SMS can use for sending you your six-digit token to get access to an account. So a Google Voice number is one. Now, obviously, Google Voice, you get a copy of that message in an email account. Um, if somebody left you a voicemail, you'd get a voicemail message in your email as well. But really, the goal here is to make sure that you are reducing the capabilities when necessary and possible. I do advise removing the capability of getting a notification by SMS unless that truly is the only method that that vendor allows for. Now, if you want to make sure that you can reduce the capability of mobile phone porting, some of the phone vendors do have the capability to lock down the ability to move your phone number from, say, provider A to provider B. So you do want to make sure that you are utilizing the capabilities of your vendor so that your phone number can be not, cannot be ported without your permission whether that be a secret phrase, such as I mentioned earlier about financial institutions, or if it's a PIN number that you create and you document perhaps in a password vault or a password protected environment so that that number cannot be used. Now that does not necessarily provide ultimate protection that your phone vendor cannot be socially engineered and have social engineering used techniques to be able to gain malicious access to your account, but it does minimize the risk. And you can also make sure that you are reducing the capability of your account and your identity theft being used to create a new line of credit by opening a new mobile phone number in your name by making sure you utilize the link on our site for the National Consumer Telecommunications and Utilities Exchange or nctue.com and you can place a freeze on your file by using the link on the blog so that you do not have new lines of credit opened in regards to a mobile phone account. This does not necessarily reduce SMS, but it does reduce the capabilities that someone create a new mobile phone account in your name that you're unaware of. And with that, that concludes our reducing your digital footprint discussion. Um, once again, as I mentioned in the intro, check out our blog at braxandgrant.com and go to our insights page. And that's where you can find the corresponding reducing your digital footprint blog and infographic that you can share, print out, um, and be able to um, kind of utilize every single day as we're trying to reduce our digital footprint um, in our daily lives. Um, if you have any questions for us, you can contact us at our website, which again is braxandgrant.com. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you for listening to Cybersecurity Magnified. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you're up to date with our newest episodes. And if you found this episode helpful, share it on social media. Braxton Grant is an experienced cybersecurity solution provider with over 20 years of experience in the government and commercial space. To learn more about us, visit braxtongrant.com or find us on LinkedIn. Thanks again for listening.